Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Vladimir Putin has raised the alert level on his nuclear forces. Well, what does that mean? Meanwhile, lots of economic activity, more sanctions, hour by hour. Will it work? And here in our province, big cabinet shuffle over the weekend. Casey Madju out from justice. Now he's Minister of Labor. All right, so now to the situation in Eastern Europe. Uh, literally um, major stories almost Every hour on the hour. It, it, it's absolutely remarkable. Uh, here's the latest. Um, the president of Ukraine said he has signed an official request for Ukraine to join the EU ASAP. Like, expedite this. Let's do it now. Uh, this comes as talks to try and secure a ceasefire with Russia have wrapped up in Belarus. Uh, not sure if there's any progress. Not sure if any progress was realistically expected to come out of that meeting. Uh, meanwhile, Ottawa has announced it's prohibiting all Canadian financial institutions from engaging in any transactions whatsoever with Russia's central bank. Um, more shelling continues in parts of Ukraine. Uh, Facebook pulling down fake pro-Putin postings and profiles. I mean, it just one thing after another. But one of the announcements that took place this weekend, one of the developments that took place this weekend that caught the attention of, I think, everybody who's been paying attention to this was the fact that Russian President Vladimir Putin basically ratcheted up the threats around nuclear war to a level we have not seen in a very, very long time. What he did was tell his top defense and military officials to put nuclear forces in a, quote, special regime of combat duty. What exactly does that mean? What does that mean to the United States? Do they have to take similar steps? Does this really change things? Uh, I don't know, and I don't want to speculate on issues like this. So we've brought in an expert to try and help us understand this. We have Dr. James Ferguson joining us. Uh, Dr. Ferguson is Deputy Director at the Center for Defense and Security Studies at the University of Manitoba. Dr. Ferguson, I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Let's just start right there. This announcement by Putin on Sunday to put nuclear forces in a special regime of combat duty. Uh, make that understandable for me. Well, it's difficult to know the categories that the Russians employ in terms of the status of their strategic theater or tactical nuclear forces. Uh, if you put in a comparison to the United States in sort of the worst case thinking, this would be equivalent to uh, the American, what's known as the American Defense Condition 3. This DEFCON level, 3. DEFCON 3. One level before conventional war, which is DEFCON 2, and DEFCON 1 is nuclear war. Um, I think we have to think about this in two ways. Uh, if this has really any military significance and reflects potential Russian thinking about the need to escalate, uh, you'd see a lot of movement or actions. Right. So, for example, uh, the Russians, like the United States, maintains their intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missile forces, their land-based forces, 
uh, with command and control on a 24-hour day, seven days a week basis. Uh, so you're not going to see much activity except for mobile systems being moved into the field. Uh, they keep, like the United States, on station uh, at sea, uh, submarine launch ballistic missiles. Uh, for the Russians, they, those are normally bastioned under the Arctic ice uh, for difficult detection by American anti-submarine forces. Uh, bombers, again, some are in the air, uh, usually on training exercise, and this, of course, is where NORAD comes in. But by and large, what you'd expect to see is a surge of activity that you'd start to see, for example, with submarine launch ballistic missiles, that the Russians would start to surge forward or out of port, such as Archangel, uh, more submarine ballistic missile launchers, launching fleet. Uh, I don't know what U.S. intelligence knows, but it can see what's going on. Uh, and I don't think that this is what we're really talking about right now. I see this more in political terms. This is a political message to the West. Uh, but it certainly has been made clear by the West and the United States that we have no intention of intervening militarily into this conflict. Uh, the nuclear threat, if that's what you want to think of from the Russians, is, is not going to significantly alter the current sanctions policies undertaken by the West. So I tend to think this is a message more to domestic public opinions in the West trying to ignite uh, the old anti-nuclear movement that used to demonstrate during the Cold War, you right. bring thousands into the street, to try to put some domestic political pressures for the West to perhaps alter or soften their apologies, policies. Uh, whether it be successful or not, I don't know. But that's the way I tend to see this. And, and like you say, Doc... What we're seeing from the United States appears to be uh, in line with what you're thinking, at least what we know. They're not playing tit for tat. They're not ramping up their rate, uh, level of readiness or whatever the case may be. They're not responding. And there was a lot of thought that was, you know, if Russia goes ahead and takes this step and changes their status, the U.S. by you know default has to do the same or else it would be a huge error. But it looks like they're sort of saying, OK, we're not going to play that game. We're going to just sit back and, and, and call your bluff, essentially. Yeah, if you want to call call your bluff. But let me give you an example of this from the past. In the 1973 Yom Kippur War, uh, where the indications emerged as the war ebbed and flowed between the Israelis and the Arab nations, uh, the Russians began to move paratroopers into launch points in the Crimea and elsewhere in southern Russia and threatened to intervene as peacekeepers to bring that conflict to a halt. Uh, the Americans responded by going to DEFCON 3, uh, basically to send a message to the Russians, don't go there. Yeah. And the Russians backed off. They didn't reply tit for tat. And I don't think the Americans are going to reply tit for tat. There's no need to. There's, and this is part of the problem of this, because this is more about political signaling and messaging to me than actually strategic uh, considerations about how this might escalate, per se, because it's... The fear that we're suddenly going to get into a strategic nuclear exchange, I think, is extremely far-fetched or extremely unlikely. That uh, is good to hear. The United States maintains uh, its forces on alert. Right. It has strategic forces that can't be disarmed, uh, no matter what the Russians do. Uh, so y y they don't need to. In other words, the Americans don't need to do anything. And certainly trying to signal by, we'll do this too, is a, would be a very dangerous move.
Absolutely, absolutely. You mentioned the whole uh, getting involved, but say, but being very clear about the fact we will not have U.S. troops in Ukraine engaged in combat with Russia, even when it comes to you know um, air defense, anything like that. They're going right up to this edge. It seems. What? How far can they go before it gets to a point where Russia says, "Well, now you are engaged with us"? I mean, what is the line? Because they're they're going as far as they can, but at this point, like you say, they're being very clear. We're not going to engage. Uh, they've reached the point. Okay. And a, a good example is, and again, as you probably know, in war, truth is the first casualty on all sides. Uh, and it's hard for us in the uh, public world to know what's really happening. But if you notice in terms of the military sales that the West, the United States, and Canada as well have said they've promised to Ukraine in the context of this war, they have been, been very careful to keep them all in the realm of defense capabilities, air defense capabilities in particular, mm-hmm. body armor, helmets, rifles. We're not sending them, and that's across, across the line, if you start to send them tanks and offensive capabilities, and then a question of potentially sending along with them technical advisors, uh, that starts to get very dangerous. So they've reached the far, we've reached the line where we're not going to step out across and maybe, I mean, if you want to be a little critical of Western policy, uh, maybe the West needs to signal itself and back away a little bit, or at least pause what it's doing. Uh, to give you another example, in 1968, when the Soviets uh, invaded Czechoslovakia to bring it back into line with the Eastern Bloc, uh, what NATO did and the United States did was not to ramp up, because you have massive Soviet and Warsaw Pact forces moving into Czechoslovakia. It was not to ramp up. Actually, what NATO and the West did was stood down. Its forces were stood down to clearly signal, we're not doing nothing here. Yeah. So that's, I think, an important, again, diplomatic issue in terms of not thinking, per se, about the outcome of the war or the various possibilities of how it would turn out but also starting to think about what's going to happen when this ends. Uh, we can't continue on with this hostile relationship with Moscow, and nowhere can Moscow continue on. So with steps start slowly, diplomatic have to be taken to find a way out of this morass. Doc, I, I've got a couple more questions for you, but I need to take a break. Can you hold on? Sure. Okay, excellent. Uh, we'll be right back with... Um, Dr. James Ferguson at the Center for Defense and Security Studies at the University of Manitoba. We'll be back right after this. We're talking with Dr. James Ferguson, Deputy Director at the Center for Defense and Security Studies at the University of Manitoba. And doctor, the question I want to ask is we're all seeing these wonderful, wonderful examples of bravery and courage among the Ukrainian citizenry, you know, taking up arms and, and, and you know, forces doing remarkable things and stuff like that. Um, and I think we're all encouraged and we're all thinking, wow, this is really exciting and interesting. But in reality, in reality, the outcome of this it can really only end one way, correct? I mean, Russia is, you're talking about one of the military superpowers on this planet. Well, exactly, exactly. And we have to think when we see these reports, we have to consider also specifically what Russian military objectives are. Uh, It doesn't look like, and although they penetrated into Ukraine as best as I can figure, it doesn't look like this is some form of blitzkrieg to roll over the whole country as fast as they can. Uh, it seems to be very paused, gradual in nature, and I'm not trying to degrade the the fighting skills right, of the yeah. Ukrainian army at all. Uh, 
but we know what how this will eventually turn out. Uh, this becomes questions of at what point, and we saw the negotiations, which probably failed, but this is probably a question of uh, a Russian diktat. Uh, I don't think, in my view, that the Russians really are interested in trying to absorb all the Ukraine and then try to manage that mess that there will be, certainly, they'll be facing an insurgency probably uh, in minutes if they try to do that, nor necessarily do they want to replace the government. They want the government to come to heel relative to avoiding such things as I heard on your news just now, I didn't heard this, that the president of Ukraine uh, wants immediately to join the EU. That's not happening. That's not on. And it doesn't help trying to find a diplomatic resolution to this. Uh, and you can imagine there's a limited objectives here for the Russians. Uh, uh, one of them, of course, is is obviously going to be a, Russia, a Ukrainian declaration of neutrality mm -hmm. uh, and to reject publicly any thoughts of joining NATO, yep. which would be a step in the right direction. Issues about recognizing Crimea having been lost, perhaps how to manage the Donuts Basin uh, separatist movements, um, implement the Minsk Accords, which the Russians say the Ukrainians never have. So there's a way you can see a limited, but eventually time is not on the side. That's right. Because you gotta, if you've got to come to, the Russians will want this to end as quick as I figure as they can, because it becomes very costly to them. Um, so you, you reach a point where they will drive forward or you'll see a diplomatic resolution to this. Um, and I'm just wondering, in, in talking to other military experts and things over the past week or so, it seems to me the consensus is it's a containment strategy for the West, recognizing that, okay, we going in and trying to fight for Ukraine, uh, we know where that's going to lead. That's not an option available to us, but we have to make sure that it doesn't get into a NATO territory or an allied country. So it looks like almost parts of Ukraine, at least, are being written off in this in, in terms of NATO and the EU and the Western world. Exactly. And there's no diplomatic choice. But right. yeah. uh, the Russians knew that, of course, when they calculated on Crimea, that we couldn't do anything and wouldn't do anything. It'd be very difficult for us. Uh, if you think about the the relatively small but still significant forward deployment of forces, uh, the United States sending more troops to Europe uh, uh, and other steps that have been taken. This is as much not simply signal Moscow not to go any further, but it's also to reassure all those forward allies who are vulnerable that the West will be there, that NATO will be there to defend them. So it is, it is you're right, a containment strategy is a good way to see this in terms of the limits of the NATO alliance. Does that come up? I mean, are those the kind of discussions that are happening, do you think, with Ukraine saying, listen, guys, you, you can prevent the loss of a lot of life here. We, we really respect what you're doing and the stand that you're taking. But at the end of the day, the outcome is predetermined. If I understand you correctly, yeah, the outcome is predetermined and it's in the hands of the Ukrainian government. So uh, uh, is like Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau and uh, are they sitting down and saying, listen, just negotiate this, get the, because we, we know how this is going to end and you don't need to lose all this life and have the refugee situation and all the rest. All that can be avoided if you just, for lack of a better word, concede as awful as that is. I would hope that's what they're telling them, but that's what they should have been communicating to the Ukrainian government long before this blew up in their face for years now 
you have to be realistic of the world you live in, your neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, if you compare this to, you think about the the Russians after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the independent republics, and this idea that Putin wants to recreate the Soviet Union. Well, Moldavia, Belarus, Georgia, Kazakhstan, the stands, uh, there have been numerous opportunities for the Russians to reabsorb them, and they haven't. Mm-hmm. And part of the reasons, in my view, they haven't is because their leadership there, for good or ill, and no one likes the dictatorship in Belarus, knows very well the limits of how far they can go. Uh, and it's no different from if you think in terms of, and again, this is not a popular thing to say, but in terms of think about the United States and its uh, political actions against Cuba in the, in the American backyard. Same thing happens. There's limits. Yeah. And you have to be realistic. Morality, democracy, freedom, all this is very nice, but we're into the world of international politics and great power politics. Yeah, and and, and, and the realization, as hard as it is, Doctor, I, I think, you know, we all know what it is, but I, I can't thank you enough for your time. We will chat again, sir. Thank you so much. So the sanctions keep ratcheting up. More and more talk about SWIFT, right? The international online banking system. Even Switzerland today jumping into the sanction game. So it's happening. How effective will those be, though? And what can be done in terms of that area? We're going to chat now with Dr. Robert Hewish, who is an associate professor professor in international development studies at Dalhousie University. Professor, thank you for your time today. appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Shay. Great to be here. So, yeah, let's just walk through some of these sanctions. I mean, it's, it's a steady increase. It's almost every hour we see a new list of them in some way or another. Um, said to be crippling, said to be unprecedented, like nothing we've ever seen before. Um, just how strong are the sanctions that we've seen rolled out so far? Well, Shay, the, the initial few days were pretty light. Like, let, we rolled the clock back to when Russia went into the Donbass area and said this is now a uh, self-declared state. Uh, originally, the U.S. proposed uh, sanctions on five ships, two banks, and three people. And those three people were already under sanctions. But then as the week rolled on, and as Vladimir Putin's rhetoric just has notched up further and further, and now talking about potential aggression against Finland and also yeah. with nuclear materials now, uh, his, his nuclear staff now being on alert, the sanctions have really cranked up. And they've cranked up to the point of destabilizing two of the largest financial institutions in Russia. Now, what that's going to mean is that the people in Russia are going to feel this. There's going to be massive inflation. There's going to be shortages. And that is going to put the hurt on the Russian people. And that's that's always been the idea of sanctions, is that you try to create this dissent, this uprising, by making the people themselves suffer economically. However, the other groups that need to be involved in this are the oligarchs, the, right. the lieutenants of, of Putin, um, to have their finances hurt. And this is where we're seeing kind of day by day the, the international community getting smarter about this, because Putin's assets are not in, in the U.S., and they're not in Canada, and they're not in, in Europe. They're in places like the British Virgin Islands. They're in Malta. Like they're, they're around the world scattered. And the more these sanctions can go after this offshore capital, try to put the hurt on his lieutenants who ultimately hold his finances, then you're going to see potential coup attempts. You're going to see a lot of the top brass in Russia turning against Putin. Um, now, 
is this something new? Was this is this unexpected to Putin? Because I mean, the the threat of sanctions was there long before he ever started this action, and he did it anyway, right? I mean, uh, how has this gone farther, or has he taken steps to sort of insulate himself? Do you think? Well, he's actually done both. So. The, the first part of that piece is that some of the, the gang that, uh, that, that Putin keeps company with, uh, if, if himself over the last 10 years and also Kim Jong-un, they've been very, very good at insulating themselves from sanctions. And for, to be honest, a lot of the international sanctions policy around the world, save for, for Cuba, I think there, there's a case where the sanctions really do put the hurt on the place. There's ways of avoidance, right, by starting up other networks. Even when Venezuela was being sanctioned, the first thing they did was start up a cryptocurrency to get yeah. around it. And I don't think Putin saw the international community and Western democracies being united on this as strongly as they are. Because the risk, of course, is there's going to be financial ripples through our own uh, international uh, market and financial systems. So he miscalculated that for sure. But the other thing he's been doing since 2013 is insulating the Russian economy from dependency on the U.S. Uh, there used to be about $100 billion of U.S. debt treasury bills that were in Russian coffers. Well, now that's down to $2.5 billion. Uh, Russia used to do most of its trade with China in U.S. dollars, yeah. but now it's only a, a percentage of that. And with India, who Russia does a lot of military trading with, all of that is done between rubles and rubies. So it's uh, rupees, I should say. And it's going to be more expensive to do those transactions, but that means that there's still ways in which money can go in and out of Russia by avoiding the U.S. system and throw cryptocurrency into it, sure. and you're able to move money even faster. Okay. So, I mean, a lot of the sanctions, they sound like they're doing a lot of things. I think the couple of the, uh, well, the one nuclear option they keep talking about is the SWIFT payment system, and it seems like we're getting closer and closer and closer to making that happen. Do you think mm -hmm. that would be damaging enough to have Putin sit back and say, okay, maybe I need to rethink what I'm doing? Yes, because SWIFT will be, uh, if they can coordinate that correctly, not just on Russia, but again, on the offshore capital. Right. Uh, we've got to look to, to British Virgin Islands specifically and then to other other uh, holdouts where his assets are. If you block SWIFT in those countries, no money's getting in and out. But it also means other people's money aren't going to get in and out at the same time. That will really put pressure uh, amongst his top lieutenants. But with uh, Russia uh, right now, as, with their own financial institutions, SWIFT will certainly hurt. It will destabilize the ruble but there will still be means to get currency in and out, and likely through China's equivalent of SWIFT, which I believe is called CIBS. And uh, that will still allow for some lifelines, but yep. the Russian economy is going to be in chaos. Uh, ultimately, to really put the boots to this, uh, the, the world communities think about, think about it strategically. I mean, you can't run the Russian army uh, without fuel and yep. without, uh, without food. And, and those two things are right now in short supply for the Russian army who, who's in Ukraine. And likewise, if Putin's top staff suddenly lose their assets, that will, I don't think he can guard against that. And I think that's where the target needs to be. 36% I've heard of the Russian budget, all the money that they have comes every year from oil and gas that they sell to the West. Um, mm -hmm. That has not been sanctioned. That seems to be so, almost a no-go zone. Obviously, that would have a devastating impact on Russia, but it would also mm -hmm. really hurt the West, too. Is that something that could possibly um, be brought to bear at some point? Well, I think that's going to be exactly where the, the Washington, for sure, 
but also the OPEC nations need to have a real serious chat about this. Uh, OPEC, if they were able to increase production, right, in countries uh, to, to, I guess, replace the demand from Russian oil, that would offset the cost here. But if they don't do that, then yes, oil prices everywhere will go up. And once those, they go up, then everything goes up as well. So it's going to be a lot of international cooperation if we are going to try to strangle down Putin's ambitions through economic sanctions. Uh, otherwise, this could be a conflict that will stew for for decades. Um, when you talk about oil and OPEC ramping up production, we know our premier keeps talking about how Alberta can fill this gap. I mean, but there's, we're talking about immediacy here. Maybe long term, mm-hmm. there's something that Alberta could do. But in terms of today, increasing that supply, does Alberta fit into that equation? You know, it, 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 to to certain markets, yes. I mean, to uh, to the states for sure, and to the pipelines that are available, yes. But here, where I'm in Nova Scotia, there's not a drop of Alberta oil here. Yeah. Uh, so the the oil that we we see pulling into to Halifax Harbor, a lot of that comes from the Caribbean. A lot of it comes from Western Africa, and uh, to a degree, some did come from Russia. So where where we're going to replace that market with? That's the key, and so. You know, trying to get try try to get countries that are in OPEC and even countries like Venezuela to play ball, that's going to be really really hard. So I would expect we're going to see some financial uh, pain at the pumps uh, going forward. Even though that uh, Alberta could do its share, it just it won't be enough. It won't be enough. Yeah, and we're already seeing the pain at the pumps. I mean, we know what's happened with the price of oil, and it's only uh, going to get worse by the sounds of it, at least in the short term. You got it. Uh, thank you so much, Doc. I really appreciate your time. I pre- appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Shane. You bet. My Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay. Our province's former justice minister, Casey Maggio, is now labor minister. He was shuffled out of justice. Now, you remember the story. It was learned that he'd actually called the chief of police, Dale McPhee, in Edmonton about a distracted driving ticket that he'd received. It was alleged he was on his cell phone in a school zone. No, really. He called the chief of police to discuss his his distracted driving ticket. Now, the premier told him to step aside and ordered an investigation. Now, we got the results of that investigation released by the premier late Friday afternoon. Late Friday afternoon is never a good sign in politics. That's when bad news is reported by governments. It's a tradition uh, that goes back to the beginning of politics. Now, the investigation came back and... With it, Maju gets returned to cabinet. So you might think the investigation cleared him, but that's not the case. We're going to chat with Dr. Lisa Young now. Uh, Dr. Young's joined us before, a political science professor at the University of Calgary. Uh, Lisa, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you joining us. Happy to be here. Yeah, so let's just start with the investigation and what it found, first of all, because through the premier's statement and the fact that Maju is back in cabinet, you might think he was cleared, but the investigation did not at all clear him. No. Um, so the, the the conclusions to this inquiry, um, the uh, retired judge who, who uh, undertook the inquiry asked three questions. Did the minister interfere with the administration of justice? And she concluded he did not. But then the next question is, did he attempt to interfere with the administration of justice? And he did. Um, And then her final question was, is there a reasonable perception that he interfered with the administration of justice? And her answer there is yes. So this is a pretty damning indictment of of the minister's conduct. Um, The only reason he didn't interfere with the administration of justice was that he was not successful in doing so. 
And in the premier's statement, he mentioned that um, he was found to not have interfered with the administration of justice. He was found that there could reasonably be be a perception that he attempted to interfere. But Jason Kenney completely omitted the fact that the report clearly said he did try to interfere with the administration of justice. Exactly. I mean, what what the premier said was not untrue, but it left out an important element of the the, the findings of this inquiry. So then the movement, he takes Maju out of justice, saying he's not it's not reasonable for him to to continue on as minister of justice in light of this finding. But he moves him into a new portfolio. It's not like he kept him out of cabinet altogether. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who think once you've done something like this, it doesn't really matter the portfolio. Sure, justice is that much worse because it's justice. But regardless, that kind of error in judgment or crossing that line means you shouldn't be in cabinet at all. Absolutely. And and I think judgment is the key word here. Um, you know, the way that our government is structured... Ministers of the Crown, so cabinet ministers, um, have a great deal of discretion to make decisions on all sorts of things. Legislation sets them up to have that kind of discretion. And so the, the key qualification for being in cabinet is judgment. We, we want people in cabinet whose judgment we can trust on a whole range of issues. And so, you know, I, I I cannot think of an example of of someone having been found to have erred in their judgment in this way and then just being shuffled off to another portfolio rather than removed from cabinet. So the question, Doc, is why? And I think the smart money says, well, because he's really the only UCP MLA from Edmonton and they want the Edmonton representation. It's not like he's a stellar cabinet minister, is it? I think, yeah, I, I don't think that it's uh, because of that. I, I think that Edmonton is a critical variable here, the only, uh, you know, uh, um, MLA from Edmonton. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the fact that he is, is black and, and certainly the premier wants to demonstrate uh, an admirable commitment to diversity in the composition sure. of his cabinet. Um, and, and so that makes it difficult to take Madhu out. And, and finally, you know, everything is about the internal politics of the UCP in Alberta. And Madhu is a loyalist, a loyalist to Kenny. And so you, you don't punish your loyalists um, in the two months before the leadership review. Now, the new Minister of Justice raising some more eyebrows. It's Tyler Shandro, who used to be Minister of Health, and we learned last week, thanks to a CBC report, is currently under review by the Law Society of Alberta for some of his actions. He's now the new Minister of Justice, so once again, people are saying, really? How, how can this be? <laughs> Absolutely. You can't make this stuff up. It's crazy. This is a really, again, a really unusual move. Um, and I think it, you know, it's worth reminding listeners that the role of Minister of Justice and Solicitor General is a special one. Um, and, and normally, it's, it's not a, a written-in-stone rule, but the norm in Canada is that the person who's in that role has to be a lawyer. And so... It, what we see here is that the premier has a very limited number of people in his caucus who are also lawyers. 
And okay. we saw the dilemma that he had, you know, even when he asked Madhu to step back um, and he brought Sonia Savage in. She's a lawyer, so she can do this. We, we've got Doug Schweitzer, who, you know, had spent some time in, as Minister of Justice. But there's not a lot of, of uh, people in the cabinet or, or in the caucus that the premier can draw on for that very specialized role. So you can see how he was backed into a bit of a corner there. But even having said that, to, to put someone who has a disciplinary hearing coming up from the Law Society in that very special role um, is, again, very unusual. Yeah. And I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe this uh, investigation by the Law Society will come back and say he's done nothing wrong and, hey, no no harm, no foul, we'll carry on and he's perfectly qualified. But with that hanging over his head, it seems like an odd move at this time. Absolutely. You know, I, I think there would have been a lot to, to be said for leaving Minister Savage in the role. It would have been a lot. You know, she's got a, yeah. a very heavy portfolio already. But leaving her there until uh, the, the Law Society had held this hearing and, and uh, ruled would have been, I think, um, more appropriate. Yeah, it would have avoided a lot of this controversy. Um, Dr. Young, thank you so much for your time. As always, appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. That's Dr. Lisa Young, a political scientist um, from the University of Calgary, joining us to sort of walk us through the late night cabinet. Well, not late night. It was late afternoon Friday cabinet shuffle that was announced. And as I say, that's, uh, you know, that's a telltale sign that what's about to be announced is not something the government uh, is happy about. And uh, they're trying to hope that it just goes away over the course of the weekend. Um, But yeah, interesting, right? We had one justice minister that had to be removed for... Um, attempting to interfere with the administration of justice, according to the official investigation into the incident, um, can no longer be Minister of Justice, according to the Premier, doesn't think he's qualified for that, uh, in light of the investigation. So he moves him out, and who does he move in? Tyler Shandro, who is currently under investigation by the Law Society of Alberta for some of his actions. Um, So... Interesting. Interesting stuff. Of course, it's all done with the light of uh, leadership review coming up a month from now. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.